Hello and welcome to the Beat the Press podcast, the show which looks at how footballers and the people around them deal with pressure on and off the pitch. My name is John Nasori, and as ever, I'm joined by my co-host and a man who can appreciate the power of stress following this dismal start to the season in fantasy football, Luke Chiverton. Oh, John, I'll be honest, uh, fantasy football is is really starting to ruin my life. Um, I mean, to be honest, it it really isn't helped by the unpredictability of the new season. But basically, if anybody's looking for tips on on who they should be putting in their fantasy football team, I mean, just go for the players that I've transferred out as they're they're guaranteed a big points haul at that point. Yeah, there are obviously this podcast is about pressure in football, and there are there are two types of pressure generally, aren't there? There's the, the pressure that afflicts teams near the bottom of the table, uh, Luke, uh, and then there's the, there's the pressure of just maintaining a top three finish, uh, and you know I can I can recognise that. I had a feeling you might uh, you might rub that in. Well, well, I feel like the I feel like the pressure this season is is even worse because everybody seems to have this kind of pent up competitiveness following lockdown. So the pressure not to lose face amongst your so called friends is absolutely unbearable this season. So uh, so when our guest this week spoke about the power of the fear of failure, I could definitely relate to where he was coming from. Yeah, yeah. Uh, getting back to the matter in hand. Um, our guest this week was Professor Mark Jones. Mark is a renowned academic and part of Manchester Metropolitan University's leading psychology department. Uh, he specialises in analysing the impact of stress on health, well-being and performance, including in sporting settings, as well as effective leader-follower interactions and behaviour change in individuals and organisations. Um, the work Mark's been involved with has been utilised by, by a number of professional athletes, sports teams and businesses, um, some of which came up during our conversation. Yeah, John, we get to speak to a, a real range of guests on this podcast. Um, but I must admit, I really enjoy the ones where we have those conversations that sort of explain the theory behind sort of very practical observations that we can all make about football. So it's really, really great to hear Mark talk about the work he's been involved in you know, dealing with academy players, um, his encounters with business leaders. And that latter example was really interesting because he was sort of saying, you know, modern day managers have got more in common with uh, leaders in business than they perhaps do with the players that they're managing, especially if you think about kind of the level of strategy that's now expected at a club level, you know, in elite football. Um Going back to that point about fear of failure, Mark talked about how that can be potentially positive uh, in in motivating athletes. Uh, He touched on the impact of the absence of crowds, which was, you know, obviously a really, really uh, topical um, area of interest. And also building a bit more on some of the stuff Lisa spoke about in our last episode about how players respond to in-game setbacks. Yeah, it's an interview that covers a lot of really interesting ground. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Professor Mark Jones. This week's guest is a renowned academic who specialises in analysing the impact of stress on performance. Part of the leading psychology department at Manchester Metropolitan University, it's our pleasure to welcome to Beat the Press, Professor Mark Jones. Thank you very much. Hi, Mark. Um, Well, I guess uh, it feels like it's quite a topical time to be talking about the impact of stress on on performance in sport. Um, What led you to to focus uh, on that area of research? Well, it's... um... Yeah, so it's a good question, actually. I think people always get interested in things that they're interested in from a personal perspective. So people think about their own experiences. But also, I think the impact of stress on performance is visible. So just as a fan, as a player, we can all think of people that we've played with or people that we've observed who were better than they showed on a Saturday afternoon at at three o'clock or who had experience of playing really well in the game. But when it came to a crucial moment, uh, a crucial thing they had to do, um, the stress or the pressure got the better of them. And so conversely, we can think of individuals who, when the chips were down and when things were difficult, that they performed better, that they were able to um, rise to the occasion, if you like. And that dichotomy is, I think, something that interests uh, uh, interests myself, interests the group that, uh, that I work with. And it isn't just about people being one or the other, because we can think of times where ourselves, we've risen to the occasion, times where we've performed a bit below where, we, where we'd have wanted to have been. And we can see that in, in lots of athletes as well, that they would have experienced fantastic successes, but also difficult times and lows for them. And the stress is about the performance, but it's also about everything that comes with it as well. So we can think about failures, the stress that brings with it, but also as well about success. And when you achieve success, 
when you achieve adulation, that brings with it success. And managing that is a challenge as well. Mark, you, you kind of alluded to some of the some of the topics there that, that you cover as, as part of your research. Um, can you tell us about some of the recent research that you've conducted in this area? So we're interested in uh, stress, health and performance. And we're particularly interested in how people think and how they feel and whether we can take those two things, the thoughts and the emotions, and predict performance from that. And we've been working in a number of different areas. So um, uh, whether these are business settings, whether these are some military settings, whether these are, uh, we've got a project going with the European Space Agency, but also with sports settings as well. So if you focus in on sport, we've been doing some work with um, my colleague, uh, Joe Dixon, who's based at a, um, a professional football club. Uh, and as an example, we've been interested to see if we can predict academy football players' performance uh, during a game based on how their body responds two or three hours before when we ask them to think about the game. So we ask people to say, think about how they're going to perform in that game in the afternoon. We take particular physiological measures in terms of how their uh, body responds, and then we link that into coaches' assessment of performance, players' assessments of performance. And we get a nice association between some of the key physical markers that we're interested in and how they perform. And so, you know, my colleague Joe Dixon, who's based at a professional club, has been leading that research with Martin Turner, who've been doing that, that work. And that's one of the most recent examples. We've done it in lots of different settings, but that's an example in the professional settings, so under 23 players, where you've looked at their physical responses and how that links to performance. That's really interesting, Mark. And um, I, I think you alluded uh, j- just there to the fact that you know we we all can think of countless examples of, of footballers kind of experiencing what can be quite a drastic loss of form. I mean, I mean, John and I were discussing this be- before, before this pod. Um, a good example for now would probably be the Chelsea goalkeeper Kepper, who everybody's kind of at a loss to explain why you know why his form suddenly uh, gone off a cliff. What are the sort of psychological factors at play when an elite sports person is kind of going through a difficult period like that? So the work that we've done really looks at um, coping with pressure, or managing stress in terms of challenge or threat responses. So if I talk a little bit about that, then that will give a bit of a basis to understand when someone can perform well and when they might uh, fall a little bit below that. I'll mention briefly about some of the physiological markers that we're interested in, um, just to give a bit of a context. So when we get stressed, our heart rate increases. And there's two particular markers that we're interested in. One is cardiac output, the amount of, t- amount of blood that goes to the heart over a minute. And the other is vascular resistance. And that's how hard the blood has to work to get through the blood vessels. If we're challenged, I put you under pressure, your heart rate goes up. And if you are challenged, then what we see is an increase in the amount of blood going through the heart and a decrease in vascular resistance. Your blood vessels uh, dilate. The blood can get to the muscles, uh, get to the brain. It's, a, it's an approach way of responding. You've asked me to go out there and perform, perform in front of 60,000 people. I'm nervous. My heart rate's gone up. But I feel it's an approach response. I want to get out there. I want to show you um, what I can do. <clears throat> Conversely, we can have a threat response. And we can look at that in terms of physiological markers, um, where we see little or no change in the cardiac output. So um, uh, not, not so much of an increase in, in blood going through the heart over a minute and a constriction in the blood vessels. So, um, uh, so there's an increase in vascular resistance because the blood vessels constrict. And that's a threat response. It's a bit of an avoidance response. So I'm nervous. You've asked me to go out there. I'm not so sure about this, and I'm going to just take a bit of a time to to think about this. Um, So it's it's an avoidance response. Both responses are particularly helpful. Sometimes we need to get out there. Sometimes we need to take a step back and just suss these things out. But those are good ways of measuring the body's response to stress. study I mentioned earlier, we were able to predict um, which footballers performed better on a Saturday afternoon. Those whose bodies were challenged performed better than those uh, whose bodies were threatened. And we always get quite a nice relationship to the body's response and how they go on to play. Some of the psychological factors that underpin this um, include the way in which makes sense of the world, not surprisingly, the way we we are what psychologists call appraise. So the way we judge our chances of success and think about what resources we have to cope. So to finally get to answer your question after about 90 seconds of rambling, I suppose we're looking at things like confidence, control, an approach focus, and also we started to think a bit about social support as well, because that can underpin that. So where we feel as though we're uh, part of a group that supports us, so we have social support outside, that's important as well. So confidence won't be a surprise. 
you know, when we feel confident about things, um, that tends to be associated with better performance. Control is a big one from some of my experiences working in um, uh, professional sport, including, you know, um, uh, football as well. Um, people will often, when they're under stress, will tend to focus on things outside of their control. And so bringing them back to thinking about what they can do and what they can control is important. The third thing is an approach focus. So that's about thinking what we can do and what we're going to do in that particular uh, circumstance. Um, so those are broadly, I think, some of the psychological underpinnings. So if we're going through a bit of a rough patch, we tend to lack confidence. We tend to be focusing on things, you know, oh, God, I'm up against someone who's just got signed for X amount of money or, or you know, oh, the system doesn't suit me or, or a myriad of, oh, I never play well at that particular ground, a myriad of things that, you know, matter to you in the moment, but don't really matter because they're, they're out of out of your control. And the final point, if I if I could just go on a, a little bit more, you know, is um, I talk about approach focus as sort of being a bit of a catch-all, that we think about what we can achieve, we're focused on what we can achieve. But I think there's quite a nice relationship between fear of failure and uh, an approach focus. So it, it's difficult. If you read a lot of sporting autobiographies or speak to lots of people who have been highly successful, fear of failure is present. Yeah, that it really is a big motivator for them. I think the challenge for us is when people go through difficult runs of form, is the is this, they have a fear of failure and it stops there. Whereas I think when we're talking about approach focus, it's fine to have that fear of failure. I don't want to mess this up. Because I don't want to mess this up, I don't want to be made to look a fool. I get really tight to the person I'm marking straight away. I will make sure that my first pass is a simple one or a good one that gets me into the game. Or, you know, I will make sure that I call for the ball uh, make myself available so that I get into the game early. So that the fear of failure and the fear of being shown up becomes a stimulus to good actions and good behaviours. And where we see people who struggle, that fear of failure often becomes a bit of a downward spiral and and, and that becomes uh, the challenge there. Mark, it, it's arguable that, that footballers are, are under greater pressure than they've than they've ever been under before. Uh, as there's there's a lot in the in the press at the moment, and you know it's clear to everyone, I think, uh, that yeah, that they're dealing with financial pressure, lack of crowds. How have you seen those kind of pressures evolve over over recent times, and what impact do you think, for example, the continued absence of crowds will have on on footballers? I think that's um, you know it's a it's a really interesting question because we're you know lots of us in different industries are going through uh, different challenges. And if you think about footballers and, and what they're going through, then if working environment has changed. Many of them will be worried about their jobs, uh, particularly at the lower levels. And, and and you can certainly see that in terms of the, you know, the recent government decision not to uh, allow crowds to resume in October. I think there are broader challenges for footballers i'm interested but not experienced in 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 social media you know we think about one of the big stresses is evaluation an easy way for us to stress people is to bring them into a laboratory and say i'd like you to speak in front of a group of people or i'd like you to do something in front of a uh, a group of people people that social evaluation is quite stressful and you know whereas you 10, 15 years ago, you might have played poorly and you might have had that experience of the crowd getting on your back. You look at social media and the role that that plays now. It's constant. It's consistent. Uh, it's invasive. I'm always astonished that any footballer or sports person is on social media. I'm presuming they read some of the tweets or they see some of them and they and certainly some of the uh, more experienced ones might have companies who manage their social media accounts for them. But I, I just think it's, uh, it's, it's uh, you know, if it was me, I just don't think I'd be able to manage that. I would just stay off it as a simple, as a, as a simple strategy. So I think there are um, big uh, challenges. You know, it has, it has, um, there are big demands that, that there are on footballers as well as many other people in, in society as well. I think there's some interesting ones that uh, things that, you know, um, you've picked up on in terms of the, the crowd. And I was um, did a bit of work on home advantage and, and researching home advantage. And home advantage tends to be driven, based on the research that we've done, to a degree by match officials. So match officials tend to favour the home team. And so we're really interested to see, actually, it's a great natural experiment. You remove the crowd and you see whether home advantage declines. And I think across the European leagues, there's differing 
data suggesting, I think some of the German leagues that suggest actually the home advantage has all but disappeared, certainly early on. I think in the UK leagues, in the Premier League, it hasn't, but maybe some of the lower leagues it has. So I think, you know, we're consistently we see a home advantage. Um, uh, with the, the home team would tend to perform better than the away team. I think it's really interesting, particularly the longer this goes on, you get a much bigger and broader data set to understand why why that might be the case. And for players, of course, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge. I mean, um, they're used to performing in front of crowds. Some of them will feed off that. Um, the majority of them will have got used to that. At the very worst, will have got used to, the, to that. They will take the energy from the um, uh, from the crowd. Of course, you think about people who might play at amateur level. They play in front of no crowds at all regularly, and, and they're still motivated. They still enjoy it, and uh, uh, and, and and they still um, they still sort of uh, um, you know put a great deal of effort into it. But it is a definite change and a definite challenge. And I think. What would be really interesting is to see actually how that has changed the home advantage, but also because you have all of the data to dig into the performance stats in terms of um, uh, in terms of how the players are doing. Interestingly, a few years ago there was um, uh, a study in American uh, college sports, relatively big in America. College sport is because of a measles epidemic, some basketball teams had to play without a crowd. And so they were able to look at the performance stats for those teams, and they saw that without the crowd, the players, both home and away, played better. So without the pressure of the crowd, the performance standard went up. And you're seeing some really interesting performances that could be atypical and just um, freak results, but in terms of goals scored, um, you know, in, in terms of Premier League, certainly since 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 it's resumed without without a crowd. And so that's that's sort of interesting to see how performances on an individual level might change. It's really interesting that finding from the American study, Mark. I've been quite interested that there almost seems to be this bias towards the expectation that players would prefer to play in front of a crowd. But I've seen lots of former pros sort of quietly respond with, actually, I was more relaxed when there wasn't a crowd. And even though that's not necessarily the response that uh, yeah. is expected of them. Um, going back to the, uh, you know, the, the very interesting description you gave between the, the disparity between a, a threat response to stress and a challenge response to stress. Would you, is it fair to say that elite sports people in general kind of automatically have a different reaction to a to a stressful situation, or, or is that a bit of a myth? No, it's um, it's a it's a good question, and I suppose there's a few caveats here. There's 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 one about how we define elite. So, would we take elite within a football sense as being those players who are, who are perhaps representing the country, you know, representing England, or playing for some of the top clubs, or would we consider anybody who makes a living out of a game to be uh, uh, to be elite? And then also, I think it's worth thinking about situations. So, one of the interesting things is you you and I'm sure you'll be able to give you know, lots of better examples. You can think of individuals who are well able to manage the demands of playing in front of an expectant seventy thousand uh, vociferous crowd but are unable to manage some other stresses being able to speak to their teammates uh, being able to public speak being able to manage some of the uh, some of the life skills that uh, that we we might take for for granted so i think there's a few caveats there but i think you know you know it's a good question that i think when we tend to look at elite and if we think about elite in across different domains surgeons, military, um, sport, then we would typically expect them to have, I think, a what they call a stronger, better stress response than those who are who are less who are less elite. And I think that would be a um a fair point to make by recognizing that there are all those caveats and also worth recognizing that this changes over your um life course or your career if you like. So that um Again, we could probably think of lots of examples of individuals who burst onto the scene at 18, 19, 20, um, don't have a care in the world. They seem to be able to take everything in their stride. And then suddenly, you know, expectations, demands change. And what they were able to do without thinking or they didn't think about, which is probably the crucial thing, suddenly has a has an effect on on. On them, and we can see that in lots of other different sports as well. You know, things like the yips in putting in golf tends to hit people, you know, late twenties, early early thirties, and you tend to see that that ability to manage the stress of putting in some professionals gets a bit worse as they as they get older. Mark, on a recent episode of the podcast, we interviewed Lisa Fallon, so she's manager of the London City Lionesses, and we were talking about a, a similar subject. So how her players or players in general respond to, to pressure. And she, she cited an example, recent example, uh, where Sadio Mane scored a goal against 
uh, Chelsea, where he misplaced the pass, reacted quite quite explicitly in a in, a, in an angry fashion, and then immediately went to intercept the ball and, and score a goal. And she kind of said, "That's you know, for, for her, that's a, an example of uh, of how someone should respond to to pressure in a really positive way." Are there any examples that kind of stand out for for you when you've been watching football recently, or, or kind of just in general? Well, I'm a Liverpool fan, so I'm happy to stay with uh, <laughs> uh, that, that that example. But I mean, I, um, I can't think of another immediate example um, that springs to mind. But certainly, you know, I think you give a good illustration about um, you know the ability to deal with in the game setbacks which I think are, are important. We've probably talked generically about stress, about how you feel about going on into a, into a competition. But of course, in a game, you get lots of ups and downs and, and having strategies, keywords, um, ways of dealing with uh, mistakes so that you don't go on a bit of a downward, downward spiral and start hiding and that you actually get back into the game, I think is important. You also give a, a, a good example there of, of the complexity of human behaviour and emotion, how it links to performance. Because I think when I think about anger as being an unhelpful, I mean, we don't know how angry uh, Mane was, but, uh, uh, you know, we might think about it being an unhelpful emotion. But like lots of these emotions that are calls to action or motivators, anxiety and anger, if they're, chale- if they're channeled rather in the right way, uh, they can be they can be helpful for us, um, certainly over short periods of time, not necessarily over over long periods of time because they're quite you know draining to, to go to that well quite often but certainly in and of the moment to be able to use that anger and challenge in a positive way is an important uh, important uh, example you've raised and mark i suppose you know context is important as well so if you're playing for a team that's successful in the way that liverpool has been over the last few years it's probably easier to respond to those situations positively because i guess there's less fear of failure hanging over you and um, it's interesting what you what you talked there about about strategies for dealing with with, with kind of stressful situations how are coaches and kind of performance psychologists kind of reacting to kind of the emerging academic ideas that you're talking about and how are they kind of implementing i guess practical uh, solutions to try and guide players to, to to respond to them yeah no i think um just to pick up on your earlier point about uh, playing for a successful team there's a nice quote from steve archibald who used to play for spurs when he said you know Group cohesion is a is an illusion glimpsed in the aftermath of success. You know the idea that if we win, then suddenly we feel as though we're all uh, best buddies. And so you know people focus in on cohesion and and teams and uh, and how they function well. And, and there is a reciprocal link. Uh, just to digress a little bit between uh, team cohesion and performance. You know when we win, we tend to feel a bit more cohesive, or we're all brilliant. I really get on with you. And 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 also, but it is true to say as well that the more cohesive a team is, the better. Uh, they, they tend to, tend to perform. So I think the the strategies and how people are responding to psychology and using psychology is um, is changing. It's evolving. It's um, it's often used a lot at academy level to develop players um, uh, to bring them in. Uh, I think it's difficult. It's difficult to give because each manager and the way they view psychology, and then if they choose to, the way they would use psychology would be um, uh, would be different. But I think for lots of managers, they might see psychology as something personal for the player, that if they wanted to engage with a sports psychologist to work on whatever it might be, confidence, um, you know, recovering from injury, um, you know, lots of different factors, that they might choose to do that on an individual level. Certainly for some uh, managers, they might um, work or a psychologist might work through the manager, so the manager, so the psychologist might give advice on, you know, um, how to uh, structure team talks, what points to get across, you know, how team cohesion, how the identity of the team can be developed, and sometimes the psychologist might get involved doing that themselves alongside some of the senior players as well, so that you know, developing strategies to get ownership amongst the group and getting senior players uh, in, involved and so on. I think, you know. Obviously, lots of the great managers and uh, will have excellent uh, personal skills in terms of the way that they will deal with players. You know, Brian Clough gives them a million great quotes on that. You know, I don't need a boring book by Freud to tell you how to uh, how to get on with uh, players. And you know, I think there, there are lots of people who have that skill and have, have developed that skill. A psychologist, what I would say, a psychologist isn't there to take away the massively important psychological input the manager has because the manager creates the team in their own image 
and creates the climate and inputs into the structures, the identity um, of that team. A psychologist can offer specialist advice and also work with players on an individual basis. You talk about um, what strategies you might use. It might be around um, uh, sort of work breathing strategies to manage to manage stress. It might be around imagery as a strategy where, where they might be working on a particular skill to improve their confidence. So I think, you know, there are lots of ways in which a psychologist can input that do not detract from the clear input that managers and the coaching team give to the psychology of the group and the individual players. Leaders matter in football as they do in lots of other domains. Mark, uh, full disclosure, I'm a Spurs fan. And so I I was watching the the recent All or Nothing documentary with with, with some interest because we've we've conducted quite a few interviews recently where we've we've talked about psychology in, in quite a lot of detail with you know with, with, with coaches and uh, and other experts as well. And yeah, through roughly nine hours of that of that film there was a kind of narrative that that, that that focused on Jose Mourinho and his and his yeah his ability, which I think is unquestioned, to, to motivate players uh, and the mentality of that that squad. Uh, there wasn't any mention of psychology or certainly kind of performance psychologists. And I think you've just mentioned a couple of the reasons why, understandably, that might not be a focus of the programme. Maybe the club wants that to be a personal relationship between a player and and a psychologist. But do you watch programs like that and think, you know, now is the time potentially to talk about this in a in a you know in a mature in a mature way? Yeah, so um, I suppose if it's a full disclosure, I haven't seen um, the All or Nothing documentary. I think you you know you're right, and you make. A, um, I think there's two things. One, as psychologists, we have a uh, not a, a, a responsibility to really demonstrate our value as well. So I think, you know, as a discipline, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that, uh, you know, so I think that's important for us. You know, how can we bring about value? Can we point to examples where we've worked with players who, and of course it's a performance environment. So we've worked with a player, they've gone on to score more goals in the second half of the season than they did in the first half of the season, or, or actually they've come back from an injury more confident than uh, uh, than they were before. So I think you know we have a responsibility as a discipline to do that, and uh, that's one of the reasons why I was interested in some of the physiology uh, physiological measures that we we talked about because I think sometimes it's nice to be able to quantify that. I think people are interested in how to get better and how to improve or how to increase the likelihood of success. And I think there are lots of psychologists involved to varying degrees with uh, football clubs, um, certainly at the academy level, but also um, at senior level as well. I think it's the nature of that relationship that probably differs across uh, across teams. And I think there's one other interesting thing as well, that where we as psychologists position ourselves within a professional club, because if you position yourself as part of the coaching staff, which is a, a good Good thing to do. It shows that it's valued. It shows it's important. A key part of that. Sometimes that can be off-putting to players um, if they see you as part of the coaching team uh, in terms of coming to you. Sometimes it's a, it's a stimulus. It's a good thing, and they say, "Well, it's definitely accepted." Other times, they might see their psychological approach to competition as being something quite personal to them that they would prefer to take with people who take up with and work with people who are outside of that particular environment because in that environment it's a very uh, it's an environment where they might feel they're being judged all the time evaluated all the time and the position in the team might not be um uh, guaranteed and so on so i think there's there's definite nuances and there are lots of great psychologists who've made careers working in professional sport and professional football who've worked as part of coaching teams and very much integrated into the into the coaching environment others who work outside of that and i think because when we talk about psychology, we're often talking about something as personal and um, something that uh, uh, you know is a, is a personal choice in terms of how you want to engage in it. There'll be different avenues and different ways in which players want to do that. But you know, I definitely beat the drum for psychology, and I think that as a as a discipline, we have a or as a profession rather, we have a lot to offer in terms of um, being able to help improve performance and other related aspects in terms of you know. Um, cohesion, team dynamics, and so on. 
It's funny when when John disclosed he was a Spurs fan. There, I thought he was saying that in relation to why you would use Steve Archibald as somebody to quote on successful team settings. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I thought that as well. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, but Mark, it's it's clear that psychology has come a long way in in, in modern football, you know, versus where it was say ten years ago. Um, but but do you still think you know there's an element of you know some managers not wanting to lose control do they see psychologists as a bit of a threat to their grip on the team as it were and and is there sometimes a, can there, can there be a bit of a fear of the unknown when it comes to something uh, like psychology yeah i think that's uh, I'm, I'm sure that is the case and i'm sure that you know but i think we can actually we, we can say that maybe as a discipline and we can say you know that perhaps uh, occasionally we don't get a a fair crack of the whip but then i think we should take that on ourselves and say do you know what? We really should be able to make ourselves uh, a, a key part of this and really show our worth. And I think as a discipline, it probably if that is the case, it is up to us to be able to really demonstrate that actually we can add value and 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 work with um, managers and coaching staff in a way that they think is appropriate. Because you know, there's no two ways about it. Managing a football club is immensely difficult I think you know um, most managers most football managers only get one shot at it I think that uh, 50% of managers will get their first appointment will 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 never get a get another one after that and actually the short-term nature of football managers as well I think I don't think the average is less than 12 months I think in some of the in some of the lower so I think there's a big challenge for uh, football managers we have to recognize that and it's only right that we work with them in a way that they feel comfortable but that as a discipline we have to show that we're able to really bring value and and, and add something to what they're trying to do as the leader um, both on the field and off the field of that particular uh, organization. Mark you highlighted earlier an example of of where you're doing some some really practical work with a, a club academy are there kind of other elements of your research that managers and coaches can kind of take and, and use maybe within the kind of short term that, that you were just talking about there? So I think one of the um, areas that we've done quite a bit of work in actually is is with leaders, not not in football, but in, in leaders um, generally. And uh, I've been working with uh, a colleague, Andy McCann, and we've worked in lots of different settings and Andy's developed what he calls a basics model and to, to work with sort of high-end, um, high-performance leaders. And so we do a lot of work with uh, with those individuals, particularly looking around uh, how they manage their own health and well-being to be able to better perform. So you think about football managers, the all-consuming uh, you know, nature of of a particular of, of being a of being a football manager. So we'll tend to focus in on um, some of the strategies that, as leaders, they would use to look after themselves. And uh, you know, lots of examples. You know, how to transition effectively from work uh, to home. Um, you know, how to use breathing strategies to relax. Um, how to look at some you know health related behaviors in terms of you know, sleep is a big focus i didn't do a lot of work in in sleep in much of my consultancy or or research and then suddenly we started to work in lots of different areas where you know it might be the number one thing where people talk about you know the idea that actually i don't feel as i'm getting enough sleep and so you end up upskilling yourself and uh, and, and, and work with those organizations on, on on sleep strategies people often talk about disconnecting you know in, in work you know and I, you can see that as well you know football managers are no different the ability to switch off uh, and transition from work to home you know you've got mobile phones and the work follows us uh, um, work follows us everywhere and so you know unless you're able to have that rest and recovery then your ability to continue to go to the well to be able to get yourself uh, sharp and as uh, focus as you can be does get diminished over time so I think football managers are leaders and they share to be honest as much they share more in common with business leaders than they necessarily do with the footballers that they might have been two years ago or one year ago and I think that's a that's a sort of an interesting dynamic and a change and a challenge for them and so you can see people like Jose Mourinho who, who are no great football career themselves, but obviously is a great leader in the way that he, he's brought success to, to lots of the clubs that he's, he's been with. 
I, I think that's really interesting, Mark. I mean, we, we, we've had guests on the podcast who've talked about some of the destructive habits that can kind of, uh, you know, overcome football managers because of the stress and because of the obsessive nature that kind of seems to be quite a natural um, approach to being a football manager. Um, interesting what you just said there, said there about Jose Mourinho and, and picking up on what, what John was talking about with the All or Nothing documentaries. Jose Mourinho has a bit of a reputation for kind of publicly criticising his players if he think they if he thinks they haven't performed very well. Do, do you think that that is potentially a slightly outdated approach to trying to motivate players? Um, because you know everything you've talked about in terms of the approach to stress is there an argument that it creates more negative stress, which which doesn't necessarily uh, motivate players in the way that it maybe did ten fifteen years ago? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question, and I think there's lots of nuances there because you never know the exact dynamics of the dressing room. Of course, I think, yeah. I think um, you know, um, just to be as you know, he is box office. You can I can listen to him speak every uh, you know every hour of the day. He's always fascinating. You know, he gives lots of good examples. I think where he he talks about building the confidence of of his players, and he gave a really nice quote when he was at Chelsea. Uh, I'm sure Johnny Hope does the same at Tottenham, where he said, "Whoever he works with, he always tells them that they're the best player in the world." So you know, you know, he he's always getting the getting the players to believe in themselves. You can see the importance of confidence. It's difficult for me on, on the outside, you know, to to sort of criticize someone who's achieved so much, and there will be methods and reasons why he does something. But to be honest with you, if you look at the literature and you look at the evidence, I think that the Public criticising of players after a game is a very risky strategy. And I don't think even throughout history, managers have ever really done that. That, uh, you know, we think back to Alex Ferguson, he would rarely name specific players or publicly criticising them, you know, in a, in a particular way. As far as I can remember, you know, it, it is a very, and that's why I think it's, it's quite strange when it does happen because it is very unusual. You think about all the games that go on on a Saturday afternoon. Um, at least fifty percent of them are disappointed with the with the result, but you don't get fifty percent of the managers criticizing the the players individually. I think you can look back to models of of psychology in terms of social identity, the cohesiveness of the group, the sense of belonging, and in particular the link between the leader and that group, what they call a relational identity. That actually people tend to respond better to people who are good advocates for the group that they publicly defend that group, that they, uh, amongst other things, that they will uh, represent the values of that group um, externally. And so it is a bold move to publicly criticise individual players. Now, go back to my earlier point about Brian Clough and, you know, don't need a boarding book by Freud to tell you how to manage those players. So Jose Mourinho will, will have an instinct around whether he thinks that publicly criticising a particular player will bring about something uh, positive in that player or the team generally. But, you know, without, I, I don't mean to sit on the fence, but I would, but if I, if I had to come down one side, I would say, you look at the literature, it's, it's a, it's an unusual strategy. Try, it doesn't mean it can't be tried, but you wouldn't want to do it too often. And you'd probably want to think very carefully about doing so. Mark, is, is it fair to say that this field of research, you know, <laughs> could represent like a, almost like a the next frontier i suppose in terms of maximizing sports performance where can you see it kind of going in the future and and, and what more could it tell us or or what more could it tell professionals about how to improve their psychological approaches yeah that's, um it's interesting hard question. Really. Oh. hard question yeah yeah i know i yes yeah if, if i knew i'd be there probably yeah that's the response to that um well it, you know it's interesting. So I think um, if you think back to one of the earlier social psychology experiments and by extension sports psychology experiment, it was triplets work with a, a cyclist in, in the United States that showed that those cyclists would perform better uh, um, in the presence of others than they would do alone. And they, they, the only way they could explain that was through this concept called social facilitation. Um, Coleman Griffith, uh, founding father of sports psychology in America, was working with the Chicago Cubs in 1925 or 19, in the 1920s. So there's a history of psychology being uh, applied in sports settings. The challenge for us as a discipline is to show value. The challenge for us as a discipline is to show change. I think that the difficulty with psychology, which is why it is fascinating and why in 10, 15, 20 years' time there will be still podcasts talking about the psychology of sport, is because it is inherently individual, that there are differences in the way that we respond, not just 
of the, uh, across people, but across situations, and then also across time. And that's why I finish every talk. I don't want to stress that you're talking about. I'm different to you, and the way we respond to different situations is different, and that can change uh, over time. Then, but if I if I think about where it can go, and I know I start every answer with rambling, and then never get to the to answer answer the uh, question. I think there is you know really good opportunities around the technology, particularly around if you think about stress and stress response, to be able to get good individualized feedback on how our body responds under stress, to then be able to manage and to change that. And I think we have so much data at the moment in terms of performance effects that, to, that we can tie that up. I think it's a danger there because you can end up getting so lost in the data that it becomes, uh, you know, uh, quite difficult. But I think if you think about stress fundamentally, it's about our ability to regulate our, our sympathetic response when replaced um, uh, under stress. And we can provide really nice individualized feedback on that and help people to train and, and manage that response. Well, that technology has been around for a while, but certainly like all things, it becomes easier, um, cheaper to, to access. So I think when we think about strategies, we talk about breathing techniques, we talk about mindfulness, we can really start to see the real time benefit of, um, of those strategies. And one of the things that we've done, going back to our discussion on leaders, we've been able to provide them with what they call heart rate variability data. And heart rate variability is an indication. It's the, it's the time between the beats of your heart very, very simply, where there's greater variability, that indicates greater resilience or greater ability to to deal with um, uh, to deal with stress. And I know you know, we talked about good examples. I know you know people at Chelsea been working with heart rate variability for a number of, of years, certainly ten years, uh, uh, ten years uh, plus. You know that found the basis of the mind room that was in um, I think AC Milan when they had all all the success there. Um, so I think you know our ability to train and regulate our uh, emotional system, uh, emotional response, I think is is helpful. So we've had good success from providing feedback to people about based on the hard rate variability about when their greatest levels of stress are, when they were able to relax, um, you know, when they, um, the quality of their sleep. So we, we've used particular commercial um, models for that, but that's been very helpful because with awareness comes understanding and then you can start to uh, bring about that that change. I was actually going to ask you about the, the role of technology. I was, I was thinking, I, I'm sure I remember rightly that Arsene Wenger just before he retired was kind of saying there won't be a football manager in 20, 30 years, it will be a computer because yeah, the data is available and, and basically that's the way that the game is going from an analytics uh, from an analytics perspective. That's quite interesting, actually, because we when we did the study, and Joe did the study um, uh, in the Football Academy, we, we had access to lots of performance data. But in the end, it's very difficult to make, because there's so much data, it's very difficult to make sense of a lot of that. So, um, you know, Luke might have a 100% pass completion rate but they might all be sideways and backwards and uh you know how do you compare that with my 70 percent pass completion rate but included created two assists i know you can build that in but but there are lots of examples footballers give lots of examples of, you know people sprinting back from corners to show they're working harder in a game than they you know than they would have been so i think you'll be they play that um they play that game as well and in the end we just ask the coaches are happy enough to say i can tell you who's played well and you can ask the players as well and we were able to do that and to be honest they broadly agreed with each other as well people know who plays well and who doesn't because also they might be asked to do things within the tactics or the structure of a team that might not be represented in the data that comes through the there, there clearly is a lot of data, uh, and you know there, there is a there is a use for that. Uh, but I think maybe in a book called Football Hackers, there was a reference to to the language around that data, and, and basically there being an issue with uh, even if that data showed uh, a result that that was kind of clearly evidenceable, that it, it wouldn't cut through with kind of quote unquote football people. Is that is would, does that apply to kind of potentially the use of technology and? in uh, performance psychology as well? I think if you can demonstrate value and you can demonstrate consistency in, in outcome, I think, you know, um, my experience, you know, in football has been people have responded to that positively, I think. And that's the, that's the challenge. I think what, but one of the interesting things about sport and football is that it is uncertain. I used to do a, um, a session with the academy players where I'd get them, well, it's a bit like... Um, you know, Mark Lawrenson does on Football Focus where he always has a star guest who comes up against him. They try to predict the results and the 
and, and the correct score. And I, I would do that with him on a, a Thursday or Friday and say, look, you see if you can predict. You're professional footballers. You, this is your – see if you can predict what's going to happen on, on the Saturday. And none of them – well, none of them got all the results right. But I think only a couple of results they – you know, couple, only one person got the right score on one occasion, just like the Premier League game. So, you know, there's an inherent uncertainty in football, which makes it so hard, you know, if you want – if it was that specific or, or, or predictable, you could make a living betting on it. But there are so many different factors, the psychology of the player. You know, we're talking about psychology of the players here, which is very difficult sometimes to get a handle on because of the individual differences and you could have the best players, but they don't gel together in the team or they don't, there's one person who doesn't buy into the manager's thing. So I think there's that uh, complexity. So I think I used to do that with them about the uncertainty because I would tell them that, um, or discuss and say, look, it's pretty uncertain. So you can only control what you can control. And we, we do some sessions. I know why it was important for them to think about what they could control going into a game rather than think about all the things that could go wrong because there's just so many of them. I want to explain that just to show there was a purpose to to, uh, to what we did. Rather, we just spent time guessing uh, uh, guessing football results. I think where there's value, people will be interested in it. But I think it's it's it's... Just because something is technological and uh, has a complex algorithm behind it doesn't necessarily mean that it's always correct either. And I think people have to be convinced that it's really going to add value above, over and above the, the, the systems they currently have. Mark, the only thing I was going to say was uh, the, the example of Steve Archibald t- talking about a successful team. I'd forgotten that he obviously played for Barcelona, so that must have been where that quote came from. Uh, <laughs> you're, 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 you're spot on. I'm entirely sure uh, that that's the team he was referring to at that point. Uh, well, Mark, thanks. Uh, thanks very much for your, for your time today. Really, really interesting, uh, really, really interesting discussion. No problem. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. So that was Professor Mark Jones talking to us about the impact of stress on performance. It was a really wide-ranging discussion, but we've we've picked out a few key points that we thought were worth talking about in a bit more detail, starting with uh, fear of failure, which is a fairly prominent discussion point in this pod's production, Luke. Oh, definitely, John. I mean, I, I can certainly think back to a time when you were struggling to find the back of the net for a large proportion of a particularly difficult season. So uh, I'm, I'm sure there was a lot in there for you personally in terms of Mark's interesting insight into players losing form. Yeah, I, I do remember that. I do remember that season in, in question. And I'll uh, I'll just emphasise to the listeners that the, the first half of that season uh, involved a, a goal streak that is still being talked about to this day, at least by me. <laughs> But on a serious note, John, um, I, you know, I think a lot of the a lot of the theory that Mark took us through in terms of you know fear of failure was was really interesting in the sense that you know you might look at something like that and, and, and assume it's going to be a negative influence uh, psychologically on a, on an athlete. But actually, a lot of what Mark was saying is that there are you know positive elements to fear of failure in terms of um, your sort of players making the right decisions because they're afraid of failing, such as taking an easy pass to ease themselves into a game, such as not taking a risk um, and maybe doing the right thing. So, you know, really interesting how the nuances around psychology, you know, aren't always as obvious as you might think. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, I think, that he talked about how how people's responses to stressful situations can, can change over the course of time as well. So... We've seen it I, to some extent, I think, uh, from the Delhi Alley situation, which is happening at, at Spurs at the moment. So Ali came into the squad and he was renowned <clears throat> back in the kind of 2016-17 season as someone that was the epitome of a young player dealing really well with, with pressure. But actually, as time's gone on, he, I think, arguably has kind of struggled to deal with some of the pressure that uh, that is coming his his way, uh, particularly the last kind of season a bit. And I think Mark talks kind of really eloquently about the fact that you know the the, the yips um, that affect some golfers actually starts to to evolve um, kind of quite prominently in people's late twenties um, when they potentially have played the game for for quite a while. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely fascinating because you're probably observing people in society in general that you know as you get a bit older you start to think maybe a bit too much or maybe a bit more deeply about all of the stuff that's going on around you. So a young player like Deli Ali, he's in the moment, all he's thinking about is what can you know the opportunity, what can go right, and he's not really you know overthinking any of the other things. I suppose as you get older in your career, you start worrying a bit about some of those environmental circumstances. 
I guess you start being a bit more ambitious, worrying about your place in the team, your place in the England team, uh, what your future career move might be. And all of that kind of noise starts to come in and I guess kind of, you know, impinge your opportunity to perform. Um, and I guess, you know, another another big thing that Mark touched on was, I guess, social media uh, for a professional footballer is, is going to be a really big kind of factor, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, without kind of harping on about the alley situation again, I'm not sure that the yeah, the Instagram post that that he put up prior to prior to lockdown helped him in 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 a, in, a, in kind of any any kind of way. But that's another thing, just you know, sowing doubt on the, his decision making process, isn't it? So you make a mistake like that, or you think, oh, I did something wrong. You know that can filter into what you're doing on the pitch as well. You, you start to worry about whether the decision making that you're going to go through on the pitch is going to be the wrong thing. So it's all kind of part of the same psychological um, phenomenon, I suppose. Yeah, and there's obviously kind of scrutiny online, uh, but you know, typically there's been kind of scrutiny on uh, pitch side as well from from crowds. And it was actually really interesting to kind of talk about that in a bit more detail because I think the perception sometimes is that without without crowds, players will struggle to to find the motivation that, that they need to play uh, and kind of reach top performance. But but actually, again, you know, some of the evidence suggests that that's that's not the case. I think uh, I think this is fast becoming one of the uncomfortable truths of kind of post lockdown football, which is that you know everybody and, and and don't get me wrong, like obviously football without fans is is nowhere near you know, the product that that it, that it was, but we like to build up this kind of mystique and this mythology about the 12th man and, and the power of the crowd. But actually one of the things that, as you said, John, that's becoming really, really apparent is that players are more relaxed. I mean, the obvious joke here is that, you know, Arsenal playing uh, behind closed doors is basically a gift because they don't have that kind of Emirates crowd, which starts getting on their case after about 10 minutes because of a few misplaced passes. Yeah, you won't find me disagreeing with that. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I thought I thought that was uh, I thought that was really 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 interesting. And and then the other thing Mark touched upon, um, kind of on the same in the same vein, was uh, the the power of home advantage and how that's kind of changing uh, in in the new world of football where there aren't any crowds. And actually, interestingly, his theory on that and, and most of the evidence that that that, that he quoted from. Um, psychological studies is that it's the pressure on the referee which tends to affect home advantage as much as the pressure on the players so actually having a referee who's in a much more neutral environment when it comes to you know we saw a referee give three penalties at the Etihad at the weekend would that have happened with a crowd I don't know uh you know but that but that's an interesting question isn't it that's a really really interesting point actually but uh I think we've heard enough about penalties for uh, for one week, so <laughs> yeah. won't dwell on that. Won't dwell on that too much. Um, thanks very much for for listening. If you enjoyed what you've heard, uh, please do leave a review uh, on iTunes. Um, and if you want to hear more about uh, Beat the Press, then visit our website beatthepress.net or follow us on Twitter at beat underscore press. Mm-hmm.